Just two things before we get started. I learned a couple of things this morning in uh, Dave's opening prayer. He prayed that the Holy Spirit would fill me with the message that the Lord would give me a message to deliver to you that I would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad to know that because that mystery has now been revealed. I always thought that this was from excess eating and not enough exercise, but A1, thank you, Holy Spirit. And just another little announcement for those royal watchers, as Dave brought up this morning in our uh, breaking of bread. Uh, I think that you could safely stroke off Newfoundland as a possible residence for Megan and Harry. Uh, wicked, wicked storm. Incredible. I'm going to make the assumption that most of us don't review past sermons. We don't look for common threads or see the continuity nor try and tie them together. We may do that if we're preparing for a message. We may look back and see what somebody else said. But as a rule, we probably don't do that. And if you do that, I apologize for being wrong. But I'd like to do a little bit of that today because what we see here in Timothy is what we see throughout the Bible. And Paul's problems are no different than Timothy's, no different than Paul's, no different than John, no different than Mark, Matthew, etc., etc. And even some of the names that you don't remember out of the Bible, those folks had the same difficulties that Paul had. So I'm going to go back and just bring out a few points that came from past sermons. First of all, this study of both 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is said to focus on the household of God. This speaks of the family with God as the head of the household. Our brother David Hook introduced 1 Timothy by speaking of Paul's heart, Timothy's position, and the providence of God. You know, you could be Paul in this story. You could be Timothy in this story. You can't be God. And that's a good thing. It speaks of a family where responsibilities of teaching and passing on legacies are displayed. And once again, under the leadership of God, who takes the position of father of the household. And finally, last week, our brother Phil Donaldson, in his first slide, pointed out that Paul's journey began with an intervention by Jesus. And this is most important because this brings us to the concept of a family together through the legacy that we all enjoy simply because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he did for us. So regardless of where we are today in the family, in your family, in this family, whether it was 2,000 years ago or it's today or it's in days to come, as little Lauren will soon find out and others who have just been born and are about to be born, it shapes who we are, it determines what we do and it defines our legacy. This applies to each and every one of us, even today. If we do not allow Jesus to intervene, our journey ends in darkness. And that's exactly why each and every one of you are here. Because in some way, Jesus intervened in your life. You may not want to be here. You may love to be here. But regardless of the reason, Jesus caused your presence here today, and that's great. I want to look back now on the conversion of Saul in the book of Acts a little bit. And I'm sure most of you will agree that as far as darkness goes, there was none more dark than Saul. 
And yet the intervention of Jesus changed him immediately and uncountable others over the centuries. Not just Timothy, but others who came after him and others who are here today. If you're studying Timothy, you probably are going to be affected by what Saul, who became Paul, said. Even today, people are being transformed by the word of Paul on behalf of the Lord. Acts 9.1 says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Boy, he had a passion for people who followed Christ. The chapter goes on to say that as Saul traveled the road to Damascus, he is confronted by Jesus. There's that intervention. And immediately given instruction as to his further actions. Ananias is directed by the Lord to seek out Saul. And he asks why he must seek out this man who has caused so much harm to his family and friends. This man was totally in the dark. So what is Jesus' answer? Just a few verses ahead in 15 and 16 he says, Go, for he is the chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Everything starts with the intervention of Jesus. From yesterday, today, and forever, this is the providence of God on display. So we can fast forward to the passage that we're looking at now. And if you haven't got your Bibles open, you can do that. It is 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I'm going to read the first uh, from 8 to 12. To 12, pardon me, to get us started. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Familiar verses. Note that these verses start and end with Paul stating that he is not ashamed of Christ nor anything related to him. Can you say that? Have you ever turned away when you've been confronted about knowing the Lord, about following the Lord? Think about it. Here's a man who just sheer moments earlier was persecuting those people. And now he's the staunchest supporter. This is quite a turnaround from a time not much earlier as referenced in Acts that I just read, where he was Saul. And such a declaration would have been absolutely 100% to the contrary of what he thought his legacy was going to be. Little did he know that Jesus was going to intervene and change that legacy. Doesn't this situation remind you of a son who has rebelled and then later realizing the error of his ways returns to his father, to the household he always belonged to? Even through his rebellion, even through his rejection of that household, he always belonged to that household. His father would not let him go. 
It sounds a lot like the reference to the prodigal son. He asks us to be with him in his suffering for the benefit of the gospel for the household of God, not through anything that we can bring to the family, but rather through the purpose and grace brought to us through the power of Christ Jesus. So it's not anything that Paul had. He didn't bring along all the accolades and the power and the position that he had uh, when he was Saul. It was all through the power of Christ who revealed it to him. That's the other thing. He was revealed to him. It is through a holy calling brought to us through Jesus Christ before time began. Once again, the providence of God, God's purpose, God's plan. You had nothing to do with it. He made it up. You're part of it. But he's the one that decides what happens. Jesus is confirmed as head of the body, head of the family of God. So we're all called members of the body of Christ. And Paul is the same thing. It's further revealed that it is through the appearance of Christ Jesus that death was abolished and life and immortality was brought into the light through the gospel. Simply put, once again, this is the power and the providence of God. It goes further to indicate that the powerlessness of each of us to affect his providence and purpose, including Paul, as his word says, he chose us before time began. What a thought. You're so important that you were on the original blueprint. Think of that. You had nothing to do with the blueprint. But when it was stamped approved, you were there. Paul says that he was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher through the calling of Christ Jesus. So he didn't want to be these things. But the intervention of Christ brought these things upon him. Aren't we all in the same position, powerless, without the intervention of Christ Jesus? When we go back to Paul's shame, or lack thereof, his past legacy doesn't preclude the power of God from changing him, even giving him a new name. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new in Christ. So the old Saul died and the new Paul arrived. And that's what that name change really reflects. The change to a new creation. You know, this intervention for the purpose and power of God is amazing when you think about it. Paul not only becomes a member of the family of Christ, the household of God, but he was, he was revered in those days for what he did, for what he said. He had to defend himself. He suffered for it. But it put him in a position that he had never experienced before. But you know something? Paul is not unique. The shame that he talks about is not just Paul's. It's throughout the Bible. In fact, there's over 157 occurrences of being ashamed or dealing with shame. And obviously I'm not going to go through all of them, but there are a few of them that are really sort of 
spectacular in where they arrive and who they affect and why. And all you have to do is look to the very beginning of the book. You could say that it was the result of man's first sin. In Genesis 3, 6 to 10, we read, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Not only was Adam afraid, but it's implied that he was embarrassed. Embarrassed not only by his nakedness, but by his disobedience to the Lord. I think that caused even greater fear and greater shame. They knew that they had done wrong. They only had one, they only had one commandment to follow, and that was not to eat of that fruit. And yet they did it. They had to know there were consequences. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they just thought they'd get away with it. But go on further. What about Abel's killing of his brother Cain? What about all the people of Israel who let a young boy go up against Goliath? Maybe it only happens to lesser men. What about David taking Bathsheba, knowing full well it wasn't proper in the eyes of the people nor of the Lord? Being ashamed is not a topic that Paul avoided. In fact, he used this aspect of walking in the light many times. For example, his epistle to the Romans speaks of this. Verse 16 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Or 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 11. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. There's that providence and power of God thing again. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. That's why Paul can speak of a pure conscience in his First and Second Timothy uh, epistles. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter, having a pure conscience. All because of the providence of God. And as I said before, there are at least 157 occurrences of somebody experiencing shame or being ashamed in the Bible, even whole groups of people. Now, we've established a picture of Paul's position in Christ, in many ways reluctant, but in many ways strong and passionate for what is before him. He has also been training Timothy in that same thing from the beginning. Not only was Paul taught, but Paul now now becomes the teacher. He is a mentor to Timothy. And he has said to Timothy to stay the course before. 
But now he is passionate about it. He is passionate about it to the point of telling Timothy that this is the end and this is what can happen to you. He speaks of his mentoring of Timothy. He also speaks of his family's mentoring through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Timothy was faithful and remained faithful, but Paul was concerned and he had good reason to. So as we go to verses 13 to 18 in the first chapter of 2 Timothy, it says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is because of Christ Jesus these words have been spoken in faith and love to Timothy and to others. That good thing which was committed to you and committed to Paul as well, of course, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. There's the power of the Lord. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not afraid of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, and that you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. These are obviously people that Paul and Timothy felt were staunch followers of Christ. And yet they turned from him. They rejected him. They didn't want to be with him. With the exception of this one individual, Anisiphorus. That's the way it is. It's easy for us to stand up for the Lord here in church because we all follow the same thing. And it's pretty, you know, we may say it in different ways, but I think that we would not contradict or confront one another over it. But the minute you walk out that door, it's a different story. Sometimes it's a different story right within our own family of other churches. Sometimes it's within our community. Sometimes it's within our country. We heard this morning of the persecuted church where books are being burned, where you can't gather and do the things that we're doing right now. How lucky are we? We have the power of Christ that intervenes for us. He points these things out to Timothy because what they thought was sure turned out to be very fragile. And he wants Timothy to remember, as Phil spoke to us last week, to finish the race. Finish it well. Fight to the end. Be very, very consistent in what you do. He demonstrates the importance of staying the course, of finishing well. The reason why he's pleading so strongly to Timothy is he knows he's not going to see Timothy again. He's at his end days. And didn't Jesus tell us that same thing before he went to the cross? Very, very similar words. Paul knows that Timothy is his responsibility as well. In his position as a mentor, a teacher, and a brother. But you know something? Timothy is now going to take over those jobs. He's going to be mentoring other people. He's going to be teaching other people. He's going to be a brother to other people after Paul is gone. And you have to do the same thing. You're not just a brother in Christ. You're a brother for Christ and you're a brother to others 
because of Christ. And you have to take all those aspects into account. You know, it's really, we've been talking about Paul, but it's really a transitional point in Timothy's life as well. He knows that Paul's about to die and no longer able to guide and direct him in what he does. He's soon to be on his own. He can't lean on Paul anymore like he did before. He has to lean on the power of Christ, the providence and the intervention of Christ. That's a daunting thought, isn't it? Let's just summarize here for a moment Paul's message to Timothy in this way. And this is from Charles Swindoll. Uh, I happen to see a little blurb that he wrote on Timothy, on both books of Timothy. He didn't differentiate between one or the other. But he did summarize it this way. When persecution and related troubles become temptations to become apathetic, a refocus on the standards of God is definitely in order. I want to read that again. When persecution and related troubles become temptations to become apathetic, a refocus on the standards of God is in order. How very true it is. And that applies today too. It's easy to sit in the seats with a hundred other people when you know that there are three or four that are doing the job for everyone. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. They're not going to be able to stand up before you, before the Lord and speak on your behalf. You're going to have to be speaking for yourself. So you have to act as you see fit, not necessarily as they see fit. Those are how you can apply these thoughts. How can you be a Timothy, a mentor, a teacher to others around you? How can you better prepare those who are studying with you? your fellow brothers? How can you criticize them but do it in such a way that it is uplifting and rewarding to them without losing them? These are things that Paul tried to do with Timothy, that Jesus tried to do with his disciples, that we try to do with others. If you go back to David Hook's sermon, his message. He has an insert there from, uh, I believe it was Charles Moody to um, an individual who was a missionary going out from from this land to another land. And he talked about the same thing. If you read that insert, you will find it very, very, very similar to what Paul pleads to Timothy. Now, I don't have it before me, but I would tell you and encourage you to go ahead and read that again. It's really very intriguing. And this is something that happens 2,000 years after Christ is gone, after Paul is gone, after Timothy is gone. He's obviously applying the message that Paul gave. Two closing thoughts for us here. In Hebrews 12.2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus despised and rejected the shame and went to the cross in spite of it. And you're a co-worker with him. 
That's what you're referred to in 2 Corinthians. Being co-workers, being ambassadors for Christ. You have to do the same thing. If you do differently, then you're falling into the darkness and you're also not being obedient to Christ. And we all want to be obedient to Christ. We can set that example in the same way that Paul set that example for Timothy. Proverbs 10.5 says, He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps through the harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Think about that. I know I've been sleeping through the harvest. Not every day. Some days. Is that good enough? I don't think so. I'm trying. And I'm acknowledging that I'm wrong. But we have to try harder. And we have to acknowledge our position in the family of God. This is the time for harvest. He tells us to go out to all corners of the earth and to spread the good news. The other interesting thing about it is that the harvest is not going to last forever. So if you want to get on the good side of the Lord, if you want to be able to stand before him and say, boy, I did everything I possibly could to plant that seed. I did everything I possibly could to keep the faith. I did everything I possibly could to bring others to you. Then you've got to get on it now. There's no time to send the tractor out for repairs and wait a week. There's no time to wait for gas to come down five cents a gallon or whatever it has to do. You've got to go now. Maybe you have to walk instead of riding in the car. Maybe you have to make a personal plea to someone instead of emails. But do something about it. I ask the question, will you be a son who acts wisely through the power of God or will you sleep shamelessly through the harvest? Because chances are if you do that, when he starts calling out names, yours may not be one of them. Make sure that you are following him. I don't want you to give an answer to me because you're going to have to give it to the Lord soon enough. We all have to answer. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful that we have your word. And Lord, even though we are studying one very small passage in it right now, it doesn't matter what passage we pick. We see your providence and your power and your purpose and your grace and your love for each and every creation on this earth. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You have known us before time began. You have intervened at the proper time for your plan. Not necessarily for our plan, but for your plan. You have patiently stood by as we faltered, as we failed, as perhaps we rejected you temporarily, or in some cases rejected you altogether. But you have been a patient God, loving, full of grace, knowing that without the intervention, we will always be in the darkness. Thank you, Lord, on behalf of all who sit here, for intervening in our lives, for being the one and true living God, for showing us your purpose and your grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, for leading us and guiding us along the way 
and through examples like Paul and Timothy who continue that work. May we also, Lord, be a brighter light for you today, tomorrow, and forever. And as we leave this building, as was spoken before, may we not only take the message to our heart, but may we act upon that message. May we continue to keep it fresh and strong, full of faith and obedience for you. In all that we do, we do it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, we ask that very question. What can we say? What can we do but surrender our heart completely to you? We hope, Lord, that we are able to do that if we have not already done that. And we hope that we continue to have our heart wide open for everything that goes on within your creation. Lord, we want to be called good and faithful servants. And the only way we can do that is to allow the intervention of your Son to indwell wholly within us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we depart today, may we go with proper thoughts, proper attitude, and the power that you have placed within us. In Jesus' name, amen.